me begin by telling you about a hobby I have. And the good news is about this hobby is you don't have to have any special skill set to be able to enjoy it. And it is people watching. If any of y'all like to watch people, uh, it is far more entertaining than anything you'll find on television. If you are in an airport or a busy coffee shop, people will entertain you for hours of free entertainment because we are quirky, intricate, sometimes even strange creatures. But more than people watching, I like talking to people and I like to sit and hear their stories. And if you listen to people's stories, you'll find moments where they overcome difficulty. You'll find moments of suffering and hardship and tragedy. And if you listen well, you'll hear about times where they've lived out their own sins and that they've hurt other people along the way. However, within people's stories, um, they have to grapple with their own set of difficulties and their hurts. And they have to figure out where God is when life gets dark. And sometimes they have to work out their disappointments with God. And they have to grapple with questions of, of why does God let bad things happen? And so today for just a few minutes, that's going to be what we turn our attention to. Now at the end of June, we're going to start a brand new series over the summer I'm excited about. Um, if you want to know what it is, you'll have to come at the end of June and find out. Uh, so I'm baiting you there a little bit, but our topic today is where is God when life gets dark? That is to say, how do we make sense of suffering and evil and sorrow and sadness? Is, even, is evil even real? Why does God let bad things happen? Where is he in the moments when tragedy strikes? Now, if you're following along, you're taking notes. I know you've got a lot of notes there this morning, but we're not going to be here uh, past two o'clock, I promise. So first thought is this, is evil and suffering are a part of our world. And that seems like a really obvious thing to say. Evil and suffering are a part of our world. Now, as many of you know, my father is a, is a pastor. And so I have been immersed in ministry, either directly or indirectly, for the better part of uh, nearly 42 years. And the unique thing about being a pastor or the son of a pastor is you get to peek inside of people's lives. Now, Pastors have this unique perspective where we get to see into people's sorrows, sufferings, trials, and difficulties across every portion of their lives. And it's different because if you're a banker, you may walk with somebody through financial hardship. If you're a doctor, you may have to give a bad diagnosis. If you're a uh, funeral home director, mortician, you may have to help a family as they grapple with death. If you're a therapist, you might help a, a couple as they work to separate and divorce. But a pastor is there across all of that. Every single stretch of that, a pastor is often there to hold the hand of the person, whatever malady or difficulty rolls into their lives. And so as a pastor's kid, I saw all of that. But for much of my life, of course, I had moments where it was difficult. But for most of my life, it was pretty okay. And I didn't have a whole lot of suffering or trial or hardship in my life. But however, and this is the harsh fact of reality, if you live long enough, eventually evil and suffering and pain and sorrow will find you. And it's found many of us that fill this room today. But for me, uh, really, I began to grapple with this when our daughter Hadley got sick and then Shortly after that, our, our second daughter had some issues after she was born and multiple surgeries and treatments. Uh, when Hadley first got sick, we spent a month in Texas Children's, and we have spent, 
I don't know how many months there since then, just more spread out. Let me tell you what. When you sit in a children's hospital and you people watch, you see a lot. And you see a lot of people with heavy hearts. And you see children with deformities. And you see children that are having to do treatments that they don't want to do. And you see parents that have to hold children down and while they have painful procedures. And so as I people watched in children's hospitals, in many different children's hospitals, it, it forced me to wrestle with God. And it forced me to come to an understanding of who he is. Uh, to struggle with why, how do we account for evil and suffering and pain and sorrow? And what do we do about it? That is to say, what should a Christian response be? And I, I don't even have to guess, I know this, that many of us in this room have had seasons of suffering and sorrow and difficulty. And perhaps I would venture to say that some of us here are in a current season where maybe life has gotten dark. And maybe you even wonder, okay, God, what's, what's up with this? Why? Why is this going on in my, in my life? Why are you letting me struggle with this? Now, the topic of evil and sorrow and pain, this has been written about extensively for hundreds of years. Now, this is a sermon, not a book. Amen? Amen, church? So we're not going to get into the weeds, but I do want us to think about this because I think this is an important part of our lives because suffering and struggling is inherent in our walk across um, time on this planet. So let's ask this question, uh, thought number two if you're taking notes. What is evil and where did it come from? What is evil and where did it come from? Theologians, philosophers, they, they lump evil into two different categories. Um, natural evil and moral evil. And so moral evil is that from one person enacting upon another. So it's murder and it's theft and it's rape and it's genocide and it's abuse. And when you flip on the news, we see plenty of this every single night. Natural evil, on the other hand, if you live in Southeast Texas, you know all about it. Because natural evil includes things like hurricanes and tornadoes and house fires and cancers and sickness. So what exactly is evil? We know this is not a substance. You can't, you can't go hunting and find a box full of evil. Rather, evil is a lack or a loss of something that should be there. Evil is a lack of something. And so just like blindness is the absence of sight, evil is the absence or the loss of good. And so evil is what should be, but is not because it's lacking. And so if a husband abuses his wife when he ought to love her, we would call him evil because abuse is present when love should be there. When people use their free will when they are forced to choose between two or more alternatives they have the potential to do good or to do wrong now there's something in you and there's something in me that rises up when we see innocent people hurt when we see people go through suffering or when we hear of a murder that takes place we don't hesitate to label that as evil We innately believe that people should, they ought to treat people a certain way. But as we're going to see today, for evil to be present, there has to be a moral agent, who we call God, and there has to be a moral law, his word. And so in review, evil is a lack of a good thing. It's not a substance, rather it is a corruption of a substance. Just like we flip off the light switch and darkness appears, when you remove good, there is evil.
Where did it come from in the first place? Why, why do we find ourselves immersed in a world with natural evil and moral evil? Well, Christianity answers that question. Because we see this, that God created everything and he said it was good. I like good stuff. God created everything, he said it was good. And he said that man was created in God's image and man was also pronounced good. However, we willfully chose to disobey God and with that choice came sin, sorrow, suffering, death. All of that became a part of the world that we live in. Now, we also know that there was this being that tempted Adam and Eve. We refer to as Satan. The Bible calls him the great accuser, the great adversary. He tempts Adam and Eve and they fall. But however, Satan willfully chose to disobey God. There arose something in Satan internally where he desired to be like God. He desired to have more. No outside temptation. His temptation came from within. So as it relates to Christian life, what is the problem of evil? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it, but you have inherently grappled with this at any point in your life where you've asked this question, God, why? God, why? Why have you allowed this here? Why have you allowed them to go through that? Just why? The problem of evil, pain, the problem of suffering has been stated a lot of different ways, but this is the general idea that if God is good and loving, then it's inconceivable that he would allow evil to take place. That is to say, it's an impossibility that if evil exists and we see it innately, we know it's true and God is good and doesn't want to see people come to harm, then we can't justify those two, or at the very least, it's very unlikely that God is there because of evil and suffering in our world. There's an atheist by the name of Sam Harris. He wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Here's what he writes. He says, somewhere in the world, a man has abducted a little girl. Soon he'll rape, torture, and kill that girl. And if an atrocity of this kind is not occurring precisely at this moment, it will in a few hours or at most a few days. The girl's parents believe is you believe that an all-powerful and all-loving God is watching over them and their family. Are they right to believe this? Is it good that they believe this? No, the entirety of atheism is contained in this response. Why does God allow such atrocious things to happen? Now, we could look at this problem classically. Epicurus wrote about this many, many years ago. He says it this way. He says, God either wishes to take away evils and is unable... Or he's unable, or he's able and unwilling, or he's neither willing nor able, or he's both willing and able. Then he works out each of these possibilities. Let me break that down for you. He says, number one, if God is willing to take away evil and suffering and pain, and he's unable, then it's a weak God. Shouldn't worship him. He says, if God is able to take away evil, suffering, and pain, and he's not willing to, then he's an evil God. You shouldn't worship him. He says, if he is neither willing nor able, then God is evil and weak. Again, you shouldn't worship him. He says, but if God is both willing to take away evil, suffering, and pain, and he can do it, it's possible, then why doesn't he remove evil and suffering and pain? Now, for a lot of people, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of pain, however you want to describe it, is sort of a knockdown argument against Christianity. They'll lay that on the table. Oh, you think God's, you think God's there? Well, what about all the evil? And we're just expected to say, oh no, I guess God's not really there. What do we do, right? Now, this argument is forceful. 
And it, we'll see why in a few moments. I think it's because it appeals so heavily to our emotions. There's nothing more emotional than watching a child lay in a hospital bed or a loved one pass away or to experience ongoing pain and suffering yourself. This argument would pack a lot more punch if there weren't a million other reasons to believe in God. And we could describe those. We could talk about how the, the universe came into existence in the first place. Why is there something when there should be nothing? We could talk about how everything got here. We could talk about the fine-tuning of everything, how everything is just so arranged down to the tiniest infinitesimal speck, and it all works together. We could talk about why do we have morals in the first place? Who laid the foundation for that? We could get into Scripture. We could talk about the prophecy leading up to Jesus. We could talk about uh, 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years writing Scripture, and it all works out and is cohesive and shares the same theology. We could talk about eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ rising from the dead. We could go on and on and on. There's all of this comprehensive, this huge web of reasons to have faith in God. Why are we Christians? Because it's true. And if it weren't for all that, maybe this argument would pack a little more punch. However, there's a wealth of information that points to who God is. But we should, however, take note that the problem of evil and pain and suffering is twofold. There's what's called the logical problem, the thinking problem, the intellectual problem. And then on the other side, there's the emotional problem of, God, I'm suffering. Why would you let this happen? The logical problem is, can God and evil really both exist in our created universe? The emotional problem is, God, this feels really painful. Why? I'm having a hard time trusting you right now. Now, I think as Christians, we have to deal with both of these difficulties. Ken Boa says it this way. He says, the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects as false. The heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects as false. That is to say, if you intellectually doubt God, doubt his presence, doubt his goodness, then emotionally you're not going to be able to rest comfortably in who Jesus Christ is and what the Lord has done for us. And so you have to deal with a logical problem. And it's not a contradiction for both God and suffering to exist. Uh, most people have abandoned this argument. But the emotional problem, that's another issue for us as Christians, isn't it? Because when you're going through seasons of darkness, of difficulty, and our emotions get involved, you may know all the theology, you may know all the right answers, but sometimes there's something in us that says, God, I want this to stop. Why do you let it keep happening? So we have to deal with the emotional part of that as well. And I venture to say that most people who reject God do so based on emotional issues and not intellectual ones now a lot of the times they'll say oh it's an intellectual issue but when you start to peel back the layers you really see an emotional pushback now here's what gets on my nerves sometimes church imagine that something getting on my nerves and a lot of times Christians get poked at and people say yeah you got to answer all the big questions and we expect good answers but the truth is Every belief system, every religion, every worldview, every philosophy, everybody has to answer the same questions. And we have to ask who answers them better. So all worldviews have to account for this issue of sorrow, pain, suffering, and evil. The question is who answers it better? And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, atheism or naturalism, the idea that everything came into existence by natural causes. Nothing outside the box intervened. A lot of times atheists and naturalists, they'll deny that God exists, but they'll affirm that evil is present. Now every now and then you'll meet one that says, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in evil. And that's when things take a really weird turn because all you have to do when somebody says, I don't believe in right and wrong, good and evil, steal their wallet, steal their car, 
and see if they're okay with it. And if they are, well, you know what? You get a brand new wallet and a brand new car. And if they're not okay with it, you can say, ho, 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 hold on. You said you didn't think there was anything wrong with it. But let me appeal to C.S. Lewis here, who was once an atheist, brilliant mind. He says, my argument against God, his argument against the existence of God, he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line to compare it to. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And so to say that there's evil assumes that there's God because you have to have some objective source that gives us moral law. We could go on. Eastern religions, pantheism, says that good and evil are just illusions. They don't exist. Now, our sense experience tells us otherwise because when you see somebody act evil, you recognize that that's evil. But then a subset of that religion or that worldview would talk about karma and that you have to do good or you have to do, or you do evil and that depends on how you're reincarnated in the next life. My question is this, if there's no good and evil, then how do we know what good and evil is in order to have better karma? It just doesn't make sense. We could talk about postmodernism. That's the worldview that reigns supreme today that says this, good, evil, right, and wrong. There's really no ultimate truth. It's just a matter of perspective. To one person that might look evil to another person that might look okay. Again, man cannot live this way. These answers do not satisfy. However, Christianity, I think, offers a response. It tells us how evil and suffering came into our world. And so I'm going to simply summarize for us what Scripture teaches. And it's this. It's that God chose to create beings that were free to make choices. God chose to create us in such a way that we could choose to accept, to love, and to honor God, or we could choose to do otherwise and say, God, no thanks, I don't want anything to do with you. And so we see Adam and Eve must have been awful, waking up every morning in paradise, you know, not having to, uh, you know, just go pluck the the fruit off the tree, not worrying about what you're going to wear for the day. Must have been horrible. But they decide willfully to disobey God. And with that, entered in sin, sorrow, sickness, and death. Now, God could have chosen to do otherwise. He could have, as people ask, well, why doesn't God, why didn't God just create a world where people wouldn't sin? Well, the problem with that is, for God to do that, you know, God can only do what's logically possible, Right? For God to do that, he would have had to create us as people with no will, no volition. We would have been automaton robots. Yes, God, I'll do whatever you... No, no. And so God didn't do that. God gave us the option to choose him, to love him, or to reject him. I know you've heard me give this example before, but when I proposed to my wife, I did not do it with a gun to her head. Why is that? Thought I was going to have to. I finally wore down. Why didn't I do that? Because love and relationship, there has to be this element of choosing the other person. I chose my wife and chose to love her, and she chose to love me. The essential component of a loving relationship is freedom, and so God gave us the capacity to choose. But with that capacity came the potential for evil, and Adam and Eve chose poorly. They chose to rebel and disobey God, and with that it opened the door for sin, sorrow, pain, and suffering in our world. So how is it possible that good and evil exist? 
sometimes people ask the question this way, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? What's the problem with that question, church? We're not good people. Now, I know that kind of flies in the face of our, our modern sensibilities, but we're not good people. And if you want to argue with me, we argue with Scripture. Romans 3.10, none are righteous, none are good, not even one, it says. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no good people. The better question to ask is why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? You ever wonder that? Why is there so much good in our lives? Theologians refer to this as common grace. That is to say that God is so good and so kind and so loving that even those who choose to reject him, to spit on him, to slander his name, to do things the way that God says not to do them, God still allows good things into their lives. And maybe you say, well, I don't know. Yeah, we're sinners, but we ain't that bad. Man, I'd beg to differ. And I think sometimes as a Christian, I truly forget, or perhaps I just minimize the true depths of my depravity. Just how depraved are we? Been doing a lot of research in this area. Did you know this? That the Holocaust Museum states that there were more than 42,000 Camps, ghettos, and brothels where Jews were abused, mistreated, and exterminated. Had no idea. Always thought of the big camps like Auschwitz and Dukal, all of these big concentration camps. I had no idea that there were thousands of subcamps. 42,000 camps, brothels, and ghettos? And we tend to think, well, you know what? If I would have been in Nazi Germany, I would have been, a, I would have been a, a German who said, no, I'm not doing this. I know right from wrong, but would we have? Would we truly have? Or maybe we think, you know what? In the United States, we're smarter, we know better, we're more moral people. Can I remind you of this? In 2020, we suctioned apart 600,000 unborn people. That happens every year. What does it mean to be suctioned apart? Well, you've heard the phrase drawn and quartered where they tie each of your limbs to a horse and they pull you apart. This is essentially what happens in utero. We suction apart unborn people. We are depraved individuals. Let me me share some research with you just because I think this is interesting. It's a famous experiment in the field of psychology known as the Milgram Experiments. And this is... This researcher is pretty genius. He tells people that, he gets people to sign up for this research. And uh, he hooks this guy up to electrodes. He's the learner. And hooks him up to electricity. And, of course, he's really with the researcher. And he tells the, the, the person that comes in, hey, you're going to ask this guy questions. And every time he gets it wrong, you're going to give him an electric shock. And each time he gets it wrong, we're going to increase the shock. And so it starts off at very slight voltage, and then at the other end, it's like XXX, this will kill someone. And as the people would answer the question wrong, they would continue to shock them all the way to the point of death. And all the researcher would do is say, uh, let's keep going, the experiment requires it. 65% of people would be willing to kill the person hooked up to this table for the sake of research. Now that's just who we are. Let me ask you this question. You ever thought about this? 
Why do serial killers stop at red lights? Why do serial killers stop at red lights? Is it um, because they, while they like to kill people, that they're good law-abiding citizens? The reason they stop at red lights is they don't want to get hit by an 18-wheeler. So, you know, you can still abide by the law. You can still do nice things for people and be a depraved wretch, which is exactly what Jeremiah 17, 9 says we are. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I would argue this, church, that it's impossible to do good absent, absent of the Holy Spirit. The reason we're able to do good things is because God works in our lives. All the other good things we do, we do them because in some way they pay off for us as people. We are depraved. It's why we need a Savior. I believe this in dealing with the problem of evil, that God created a world with the greatest amount of good and the least amount of evil. That is to say that God so arranged things based on our freedom to choose where the maximum good is present, the maximum amount of people will come to know the Lord, and the least evil is present. Why would God do that? Because God cares about our suffering and our hardship, even when we have questions. Well, maybe you say, well, why doesn't God stop evil and end suffering? Well, can I challenge you here? Who says that there aren't times where God does stop evil and stop suffering and you're just not aware of it? I think there are multiple times where God shields us, pushes it back, and we don't even know it. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say this took place in the life of our daughter six years ago. I saw her slip in and out, I think, of going to be with the Lord and to stay here. Now, she has this, this burden and this journey that she carries, that she walks through, but she's still here. I think sometimes we don't realize how God does push back evil in our lives. But can I challenge you here? We also have to consider the fact that each of us brings suffering into this world. Because here's what I want to do. I want to look at the suffering in my life, and I want to say, God, this doesn't seem fair. But I forget about the suffering that I bring into other people's lives through my willful, sinful behaviors. You've heard me say it before, but somebody's therapist knows your name. You are the cause of someone else's misery at some point along the line. We forget that we're part of the problem, are we not? God, why don't you jump in and why don't you rescue? Can I remind you of something, Christian? That he has. That he has jumped in and rescued. Now, he doesn't always swoop in and save you from the exact thing you're dealing with in the moment. However, Colossians 1, 13 through 14, there we go. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. God has done something about evil, sorrow, and suffering, but we haven't fully seen it actualized yet. Evil will be judged. God has intervened. But can I pose this to you as well? Might God have good reasons for allowing suffering in this life? I think so. Now, I can't fully unpack this, but I am going to read Scripture to you. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Here's what Paul says. Paul knew sufferings. Paul was a man well acquainted with sufferings. And most of his sufferings were because he was a follower of Christ. He writes this in Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What's Paul saying? He's saying since suffering is a part of this world, 
Why is that? Because we willfully chose to disobey. God uses our suffering for his good purposes. Now, can I remind you of this? Let's say that Josh Fultz gets 100 years. 100 years, okay? And let's say that many of those years are full of suffering and pain and sorrow. And I step into eternity. Let's add another 100 years there, okay? Let's add 500 years there into the future in eternity with Christ. Let's go a 1,000. Now, I'm running out of arm, but eternity is a really long way, church. You tracking with me? Now, when I'm 10,000 years into eternity, this 100 years of difficulty is going to be but a distant memory. We've got to remember that. Now, as we close, can we ask this, our last question? How should we respond when life gets dark? Well, for me, this is honestly what it boils down to. This is the, in my personal life, it may be different for you, but in my personal life, this is the linchpin question. Do I really trust God? Do I really trust God? Do I believe that he's good? Do I believe that God has a plan? Do I believe that there's more to this phys- than this physical world that we see? Do I believe that one day it will be worth it all? Do I believe that God has good reasons for the suffering we go through? If we don't trust God, what the mind rejects, the heart cannot find comfort in. Do I trust the Lord? 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What lies ahead will be far better than what is, which is that while we ask this, what's our focus on? Because I have the tendency to get bogged down into the minutia of my present life, and sometimes that involves my present sufferings and difficulties. You see, we're in a weird place in history. For much of the world's history, it was rough just being a human being. It was a difficult task. And so for many people throughout thousands of years, there was this future focus for Christians of what's coming is going to be better. Today is hard. What's coming is going to be better. But as Americans, we have it pretty good. We don't have a lot that we struggle with. We don't lack very many things. And even those of us that feel like, you know what, I need more, we probably have more than most people in the world is our focus on what's right in front of us or is our focus on eternity? I think we have to remember this. When life gets difficult, that we trust God in our sufferings. That we trust God in our sufferings. Romans 8, 28. And we know for those that love God and are called according to his purposes, all things work together for the good. What's the good there? The good is the knowledge of God, the understanding of God, and being conformed into the image of God. That's how all things work together for the good. In other words, God is using our sufferings and our pains to draw us to himself, to shape us, and I think we're going to carry that with us into eternity. I think we're going to have some sort of reminder of what we've come from and why it's so precious in eternity. Trust that God uses our sufferings. Now, last couple of thoughts, and we're going to close out. This one's hard. Maybe you're, in a, maybe you're in a season of difficulty or pain or suffering. Don't wait for your suffering to end before you enjoy the life that God has given you. Because here's what happens sometimes. We have this tendency to say, well, if we can just get here, we'll be happy. Or if life can just be like it used to be before this trial rolled into my life, then I'll be happy again. Here's the thing. Your suffering may not end. Or there may be more suffering that comes along. What a tragedy it is to not enjoy the day 
to enjoy the season because you're unhappy about your circumstances. And, and furthermore, for those of us that have, have lost people that we care, care about, how unfortunate is it if we spend our lives in misery because of our loss when God has given us a brand new day? Can I remind you when life gets dark that God is with us in our sufferings? This is what I, one thing I love about Christianity is that we don't serve a God who's gone, who's absentee, who's in the back room, permissive parent, letting us just live our lives down here, that God is with us front and center in our sufferings, that he walks with us. The Bible says this, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, that he is with us, that he's for us, that he loves us. And not only that, but he's a God that also entered into our sufferings and the person of Jesus Christ came, left the, the pleasures of glory, came and walked among us, dealt with the same things that we deal with, suffered unimaginably, that God relates to us in our suffering. Last, what do we do when life gets difficult? And I know I probably overused Tolkien and Lewis. I'm sorry. I just can't help it. Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis says this. If you've read the books, and if you haven't, you should. They're great fiction. They're kids' fiction, but they're still delicious. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a line named Aslan. And he's the Christ figure all throughout the, the seven books. He's the Christ figure. A little girl named Lucy, she hears about him for the first time. And she says, oh my goodness. A lion, that sounds terrifying. Is he safe? And the response is, safe? He's a lion. He's the king of the jungle. He could devour you. No, he's not safe. But he's good. That's where I rest. The goodness of God. That's our hope in the goodness of God. You know, sometimes people will say things like this, and I understand what they mean. You're never safer than when you're in the center of God's will. That's both true and false. Because you're safe in the center of God's will in the fact that your eternity is secured, that you know him, that he is with you. But when you're in God's will, that doesn't mean you're not going to struggle physically. Do you know how many people are on the mission field amongst people groups where when they go to bed, they don't know if they'll wake up the next morning. They're in the center of God's will and there is a physical threat to their safety every single day. God's not safe, but he's incredibly, incredibly good. And let me be honest with you. I want to worship a God I want to worship a God who isn't safe, who could devour me, who is totally other from me. That's the God I want to worship. And sometimes Christianity paints Jesus as this hapless, hippie, loving, give me a big warm hug kind of God all the time. That's not the God in Scripture. Now, does he love us? Yes. Is he good? Yes. But he is a lion. He is God. He is able. And we have to trust who he is. We have to believe what he says. And we have to lay our head on our pillows in the moments of difficulty and trial and sorrow and suffering and rest in the fact that he's a good God.